Today's episode of Found Down is brought to you by Unwound Retreats. Unwound Retreats offers fun events and travel experiences for nurses locally and internationally. Founded by me, Nicole Johnson, ICU nurse and host of the Found Down podcast, I provide opportunities for nurses to practice self-care, learn, and travel together. These last two years have been brutal in healthcare, and why not give yourself the gift to unwind, learn, and grow? Previous guests have loved the experiences, especially because you can just show up and know that everything will be taken care of. Unwound Retreats is offering exciting and luxurious retreats in Morocco and Mexico. Go over to unwoundretreats.com and sign up to get on the email list so you can find out more. Hey there, this is Nicole, the host and producer of the Found End Podcast. Before I get into today's show, I want to say happy Memorial Day to everybody out there. And for those of you that served, I want to recognize you and say thank you. If you have served, if you're currently serving, if you happen to be listening, um, if you've served our country, thank you for everything that you've done. Um, I truly appreciate you from the bottom of my heart. Before we get into today's episode, which is kind of heavy, I want to get into a couple of things. One is um, thank you to those of you that have rated and reviewed my podcast. I so appreciate it. If you want to leave an honest review wherever you listen to podcasts, I would truly appreciate that. And if you want to go to Morocco, seriously, this trip is happening this September it's, um, there's still spots. So you can go to unwoundretreats.com and check out the nurses retreat in Morocco. Now I want to give a good shout out to the sponsor of the show, Nicole Kupchik. You know, she's a CNS and educator and she has her own business where she has put out tons of materials for nurses that include courses like hemodynamic monitoring, cardiac boot camp, CCRN review certification, and of course, she's got a new ABG course out there. If you want to grow your practice, uh, I would encourage you to go to NicoleCupcheConsulting.com and use the coupon code FOUNDDOWN20, that's lowercase FOUNDDOWN20 at checkout to get 20% off all of her products. So, anyway, I want to give a shout out to all of you that listen week after week. Those of you that have written me, you really keep me going. You keep me um, inspired to keep making this podcast something that's meaningful. Um, and, uh, you know, I truly appreciate all of you that are listening and, um, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Now we're going to get to it. This one's a heavy one. It's about death and dying in the ICU. So I don't know. You might want to get a tissue. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, but, um, thanks so much for listening and here you go. Welcome to the Found Down Podcast. This is a podcast of untold nursing stories that are sometimes hilarious, dark, insane, and anything in between. As a warning, this show is rated E and is mature in content. It often deals with the reality of life and death and how we as nurses intersect with that on a regular basis. If we laugh, it's not out of disrespect. We love what we do and have every intention of continuing to do so. With that, enjoy the show. Well, hello and welcome to the Found Down Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Johnson, and I am so stoked because I have my good friend back on the show, Des Wood, and we know her as, you know, she's a critical care nurse practitioner. She also is a certified yoga instructor, and she also is an entrepreneur and has her own business called Seattle Beauty, and her um, where she does... 
neurotoxins, facials, and fillers. And anyway, she's got a ton of stuff going on in her plate. But today we're going to talk about something kind of heavy. And that is death and dying in the ICU. And and I truly want to pull back the veil on some of this. Um, And so, you know, I want to have some honest conversations about some things that I don't know publicly people talk about, but it's, you know, things are things that I chat about with my coworkers and colleagues. So uh, anyway, before we do any of that, how are you, Des? Hi, it's just so good to hear your voice. You have such a great podcast voice, just so you know. What? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Thank and I you. was just um, reading one of your reviews. And again, I, I think what you're doing is it's really unique and incredibly special to dedicate time to have these honest conversations. And I feel like found down is, you know, you're, you're there for people. Um, and it's just really cool to either listen to your show in the car or, you know, going to and from work or on a walk. I think you, um, it's a powerful medium and I really respect what you're doing. Thank you, Des. Thank you. I, I'm honored that you would say that. And thanks for also spending time with me. You know, this is, I think number four, right? Wow. Isn't that right? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, so I, yeah. How am I? Uh, how okay. are you? Right. <laughs> right. I feel like right now that's such an interesting question. Um, you know, before we start to launch in our heavy stuff, I feel like there's some lightness. You know, I've been traveling a little bit. I've actually gotten on an airplane. <laughs> I've been around people without a mask that are vaccinated. Um, and I'm just starting to really delve into honoring some self-care, which is probably a really good thing to talk about after this discussion. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you're digging in. Um, you, you went on a yoga retreat too, right? Oh my gosh. I went with my really good yoga girlfriends and my instructors, Morgan and Robin, and we went to Zion National Park. And it's just an incredible place. If any of your listeners are thinking about it, go. It's beautiful. Mm. Do you, I'm sorry, we didn't think to talk about this, but do you have the name of that place, like the retreat place or? Okay. The- so it's called under the canvas and there are these beautiful yurts and the company is really cool. They're located in like eight different national parks. Oh my God. Um, and you can, yeah. And you can go and look them up. My instructors um, went with a group called the Trava group. Anyway, we could provide details in your notes, but yeah, totes. That w- it, I like went with my because I love my instructors, but having that space in the beautiful desert with canyons surrounding us was just awe inspiring. Your um, pictures were amazing, and um, <laughs> I, you totally deserved that time for yourself. <laughs> you know, you're also a mom, and you know, yeah. you work full time, and you have. Two other jobs, you know, you got a ton of shit happening. So I got a ton of shit. No, it was really good. And I know you've been traveling a little bit too. So. Yes. That's been so, it's been therapeutic. It's therapeutic, you know, like we're starting yeah. to do these things that once we used to take for granted and, you know, I mean, I went on a walk today with my husband. We both didn't even bring our masks, you know, we're fully vaccinated. It's, you know, and it, we didn't encounter very many people. It was but whatever, like, um, obviously I still wear about masks, masks and stuff like that, but outside and with the two of us, it just felt like, okay, you know, maybe we can do some things like this. 
Um, yeah, we can, we can do this. And like, you know, this topic we're going to be talking about as ICU clinicians and nurses in the hospital, you see some really dark stuff. And so getting outside, being with your partner, being with your friends and enjoying life to me is like how you balance all that. Yeah. Man, I will tell you what, I don't know what's been going on at my, at your place, but our place, our whatever, our mortality fe- feels high, you know, it's so, it's probably also good to talk about because it's on the forefront of my mind, you know? Absolutely. And I think you and I were talking about your specific unit has a very high mortality rate, like one of the highest in the state or in the country, in the West Coast. I can't remember what you said. I don't, I mean, it's basically, you know, you take the oncology ICU patients and then you take the MICU patients and you put them together. And I think it's like 33%, which is really high. I don't know what the standard is. I probably should have looked that up, but I will say that one in five Americans, this is pre COVID numbers, you know, end up dying in the ICU. So that's right. You know, um, and gosh, we see those patients who are home on comfort care or home on hospice, and then they start to struggle and their families reverse those decisions and bring them in. And then we try to do everything. And that, that feels preventable. You know what I mean? You know like, what? I'm actually doing that right now. We have <gasps> a patient in the ER with that same situation. So I, I, I think, you know, that distress it's part of our job in a way. And I don't know if it's always preventable. I think sometimes it can be, but I work in a socialized system where there is a lot of network, you know, and, or, you know, safety net hospital. Um, but I think in particular, just death and dying in America is so not seen. Um, and it's scary. It's, I think one of the biggest things that's come out of this pandemic, at least that I'm hopeful for, is that we have more of these discussions of what you would want at end of life. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and as we know, too, you know, no time is now, nothing is guaranteed. So have those conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And when I was like preparing for this talk, I thought about, you know, um, I've seen a lot of deaths. I know you have too. And there are deaths that stay with me. Um, I mean, this summer, you know, I had very close family members die. And so those are obviously really in my heart. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But probably the hardest thing about that is I wasn't at the bedside because of COVID. And I'm not sure what's going to happen to families after this, because watching your loved one die on an iPad or from the door, I couldn't even be there. It was so disturbing. And I really relied on the nurses at the hospital to be there with my grandma. And I, I don't know, I just couldn't do it. It was just suffering. I could not watch from the door. It just killed me. Yeah. So I was so grateful for the nurses because you, you know, where you're there, you were there, you are there. Man, the other day I had a, a patient who, you know, obviously can't say much about it, but had some stuff going on. Um, sure. And, uh, you know, of course we had to like limit the number of family members there. And, 
um and you know we you know we kind of know we kind of think we know like when someone might die but the truth is like we there's no there's no guessing there's no guarantee there's like no crystal um, ball <laughs> no and i actually didn't think he that person was gonna die that day um I didn't mm-hmm. anticipate it based on the respiratory rate. And um, although there were some other things that, you know, what could point to what happened eventually, but um, his family was all there and then not, well, not all there, but like a couple people were there and then they left and the, with the intention to come back. And all of a sudden, like his, and I didn't know when they were coming back, you know, um, but his respiratory, he he got agonal, right? And I was like, oh, wow, okay. So I called him immediately and was like, you got to come back here. He's going to die any second, you know? And I just, you know, so I was with him when he died. And um, there were, and I just felt so bad, Des. Like, I mean, I know I was with him, but like his family wanted to be there and like, you you have this level of responsibility you feel like that that you want it to be perfect or you want things to go you want them to be there you want things to go as planned but like there like you said there is no crystal ball and i i feel fucking guilty about that you know mm-hmm. so yeah i mean I, you know there's nothing i can do but like um just know knowing that um, you know, he wasn't alone. And we, of course, you know, we, we, I'm sorry. Mm, it's okay. <laughs> mm. Anyway, <laughs> you know, we, we just, um, yeah. you, you know, we, we're taught, you know, that people come into this life once and they come out, they can leave once and you, you mm. we're, we're, it's ingrained in us to, um, try to provide the most gracious and beautiful death. Um, it doesn't always go that way. <laughs> and I have a funny story I'll tell you. <laughs> you know, though, I'll, t- I'll say no, something. I'll, I'll, I'm going to save that one for a minute. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, no, I, I was just going to tell you, like, it's really not uncommon what you described is the patient's families leave and then they die. That's true. And even it, I see it happen. I just, I, I think it's almost like I'm not a religious person, but I do believe in our energy <laughs> and yeah. there, we are energy, right? We're, we are, I'm a scientist. We are energetic beings, right? We're made of carbon and water molecules and we have a, there's a power in our spirit, right? If yeah. you, your listeners may be saying this is woo woo, but honestly, I've seen it many times where family leaves and the patient's like, okay, now the soul can pass. And you know, that's like my hospice nurse living in me and just explaining that to you to not there again, there's no control over that. And maybe there's a reason for that. Yeah. You know, whatever reason the patient could finally let go because they got to see the family and what a gift, what a fucking gift that they got to be there. Yeah. And, and give comfort. And yes, maybe it wasn't during the final breath, but at that point we know the mind is not cognizant of that. Right. Right. He wasn't, he wasn't here. You know, he yeah. was I'm like, Oh, it is curious to think of like where, 
where, where was he? You know, I, I definitely think about that when I'm in those situations. I'm like, where does the spirit go? And like, where is, is the body you're, you know, are you like outside of the body, you know, in those last moments or those hours? Yeah. You know, I totally forgot about that. I would think I've been up to, this is a, you know, too close for me to think about that, you know? Sure, um, sure. But you're right. I've seen it a, a bunch myself, you know, where they either family members hold on until someone gets there and then they die. Yeah. Or they, you know, just decide on their own, I'm going to go. Like, you know, I'm sure you've seen it too in like family meetings where they're discussing what they want to do for a patient and they they just end up dying in the middle of the family meeting, you know? where the patient oh my decides, decides for themselves. Right. I mean, it, 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 it's so variable, but I try in those moments when I'm like you feeling really, um, you know, it's, it's, this is soul work, you know, like we are literally walking people to the other side. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, and it can be, it's our own soul because most of us that are nurses are empaths, right? Like, because we care deeply. And, um, so part of us transitions with that in a way, but that's what makes the job so good and how we're really talented at it too. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, the other thing I was thinking about when you were talking to me about this subject is like, do I remember these patient situations? And it's funny, like some of them I do and some of them I just don't at all. And I think that's also how you do this job for so long <laughs> because yeah. if you constantly were living in that space of where you are right now, or like, again, this is why shift work, I think works for nurses because you're not there every day. The job is just too draining. Yeah. But I definitely, you know, I remember coming off consortium as a new grad and my first assignment, I was grouped with a woman that was a previous nurse transitioning to comfort care with a deep flap who was getting leech therapy. <laughs> like, that was wait. my first day off orientation. You're like, wait a second. If, and some of your listeners might be saying, what the hell is leech therapy? Well, we use that quite often in the surgical ICU to help with venous congestion. But you had to count the leeches, right? Because they could fall off and like climb out the ICU, which would be a like HR nightmare. <laughs> Right. And, and then I like, and then I'm with this other woman who's actively dying on the ventilator and I was withdrawing the ventilator and I had no idea how to do it. And I remember a seat of the nurse who I won't name because she might listen to the show was like, Des, just turn it on 999, pull the tube. Yeah. I mean, and I was pooping my pants, literally like, what do you want me to do? Yeah. It, and I, I really glad you brought this up because I feel like we, I want to talk about this. And that is um, we have a scope of like what we can do. And I think when earlier, when earlier, earlier on in our careers, it was a little loosey goosey. Um, and there's a little bit more, you know, protocols and things in place now. But I mean, what you're describing is, you know, for those out there who don't know, if you pull a ventilator out of, you know, if you take it out, someone is going to die, struggle, and struggle. Gasp, 
And it would, you know, like it's, it would be inhumane to not give them anything. So you have to, basically you, you aid them in the process of dying. They're going to die already. Um, but you have to give them, you know, medications to make it so they're not going to suffer in their last moments of life. Yeah. And this woman was an ARDS. So she was breathing like, I think 50 times a minute. So in order to get her respiratory rate down to a place where she wasn't going to basically suffocate yeah. if we remove the tube, because that's what you would describe it as suffocation. We had to maximize the sedation and the morphine to allow her, you know, to relax and slow down her breathing and, you know, have an easy transition off of that high, high support. Yeah. But as a new grad and as a new nurse, I'm sure you were pooping your pants. Those, I'm like, I really want to say something, but like, I'm really hesitant to say it. Mm. Um, but it's, it's the truth. If I say it, it'll be the truth that fuck it. I'm going to say it anyway. Cause it, if you know, okay. if I've said it to my friends, nurse friends, I, I can say it here. You know, in those situations sometimes, especially as a new grad, I would literally like sit in the break room and think, I fucking just killed somebody. I killed somebody, you know, mm-hmm. which isn't the truth. Like all, all I'm saying about saying that this was the truth, the sentiment that I felt is a feeling that we've all had. Um, but the truth is, is that there these patients, multi-organ failure kill them. These they've already on a path that we're just helping them transition to the afterlife so that they will not struggle. Yeah. And these patients don't die at home anymore. They die in the hospital. Yeah. And so that's where, you know, if you look over the trajectory of the last, you know, since the invention of the mechanical ventilator and the hemodialysis machine we've been able to extend life, but there's a cost to that, right? Because eventually the patient will die, but we also have to ensure the patient doesn't suffer because that is not ethical. Right. So it's constantly this sort of balance of where we're at in terms of principalism, which is the, the study of medical ethics and how we act in that setting. And oftentimes in nursing, it is gray. Um, and there is no perfect answer. And so in that moment, you know, the patient had, and the family decided that they wanted to transition to a hospice philosophy, which is to treat comfort over cure. And that's when I, when I start to feel like that ting, and maybe you have some new nurses listening here and I, just want to let them all know that they're doing the best they can. And if, and if the goal is for the patient and the family and is in line with, you know, what we do as nurses, which is to help and suffering, then we are doing the right thing. But I don't want people to feel that heavy burden because that's not the case. Like you said, it's the multi-organ failure. It's the end stage cancer. It's the COVID it's the sequela of limited access to resources and all of that. And as nurses, we're often just put in the middle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, these folks, like you said, could live 
for a long period of time on these devices and not that that's right, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so- if you take all that stuff away, they wouldn't live. I mean, you know, we already know that. Like, what, they, that's why they're on them in the first place, right? Exactly. So, like, it took me a while as a, I don't know. I don't know when I came to peace with it, but eventually I did where it was like, yeah, yeah, they, they were already on this path. They were already in this trajectory as sad and as awful as it can be sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, we're doing the right thing, like you said, by easing suffering and um, helping them pass. Peacefully. Yeah, and I think for you and I, we've spent our career in critical care when, you know, there's just this high, high tech abilities. And I've seen some lives changed I remember this was probably 10 years ago, maybe 11. So a patient who had a near drowning in Alaska, he was water skiing and like is basically um, the, the rope wrapped around his neck. Yeah. You, you had this patient mm-hmm, and he was like dead. His brain, you look at his MRI and like half of his brain was black. Remember this? I do. He had a complete left like he stroked out. Yeah. Stroked out. He stroked out um, the entire half of his brain. And he had a ventric. He was like, um, you know, really high intracranial pressures on the ventilator. And like, he came back on the unit a year later, walking in with a cane. So and he had no, <laughs> like his personality was unchanged. He was exactly the same person who he was. Before. I mean, that is like, you know, a medical, I've never seen anything like that. That's um, a miracle. But yeah. It's a miracle. And, you know, I think you, as nurses, we have to hold both those scenarios, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, we have to balance that like amazing heroic story that happens to 0.001 people that are 29 year old, 29 years old with amazing genetics and also amazing acute care, critical care medicine. That person got the best care in the world. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he like recovered. Now, at the same time, you also have to hold that with like, okay, it's a miracle that this 89 year old woman who has end stage heart failure has decided to transition and hold her hand while her daughter, you know, melts on the floor because she's dying. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's so. You constantly have to be balancing all those things. Do do you think that, um, you know, nursing school or even your orientation prepared you for some of this stuff? Can I cuss on this show? Absolutely. (laughs) No. (laughs) Now you have to remember nursing school. I, so when I started, I was a tech in postpartum. Like I thought I wanted to work with babies. Same. You know, I loved it. I got to take their, do their first footprint, give them the eye drops and like watch this magical moment of life. It was awesome. And then we had a woman who like hemorrhaged and nobody knew where the blood bank was. And I was like, Oh shit, I should not start here. And not that I don't love my OB people. I love you. I love you. But it's a healthy, it's a normal thing. Like OB is for healthy, well people for the most part. Right. Right. Um, and so nursing school has to prepare you to work in all of that. 
But yeah. was the end of life component missing? Um, we, I don't even think, I don't remember one lecture on it, honestly, not one. I don't either. And I think we went to the same school and I think we were like two years apart. Um, and I, no, I don't remember it either. Mm -mm. So it's hard because I hope now, Jesus, I mean, I do for my students in the DMP program, I do all sorts of palliative end of life care because having those discussions with families to me is it's crucial as learning respiratory failure and mechanical ventilation and central line. You know, it yes. is crucial to our job. Crucial. Number one, that is the number one thing I do when I'm doing ER triage is, Hey, in the event your heart was to stop, would you want cardiopulmonary resuscitation CPR? <laughs> you know, and I do the little hand thing and they're like, Oh no. <laughs> or they say, Oh yeah, I can live through that. And I'm like, cool. Okay. I mean, you're right, Jess. Um, those conversations are so critical. Oh, 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 God. I, for some reason, I was thinking about there was on the tangent of like nursing school and um, how it prepares you. I did. Someone told me not too long ago that they were, you know, I think flushing out some of these topics in nursing school for some for for recent graduates. And one of them said that they had to do some work on self-compassion or there was a, you know, at least a, you know, talker or something about it. And their exercise was to write a paper. I feel that like that. My, that was my sister. Oh, that was. <laughs> that was Sam. I was Sam. like, she's like, Des, we have to write a paper about how we're empathetic. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. <laughs> Missed the mark. Missed the mark. I know. There's an opportunity there. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think academia, I mean, you and I both work in academic centers and I love it. I love that. I love learning. I love knowledge. But I think, too, we still just don't know how to teach always this, like, balancing again, the, you know, stroke victim recovery and the, like, death and dying next door. Yes. Other than just being holistic. And knowing that your place in the world as a nurse is to sometimes be a witness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I had a very, sorry, go ahead. No, no, please. I had a very, um, this is going to sound super crass, but I had a, I had a revelation the other day or, or a thought when, you know, we had had a few, like three people die on the same day. And, um, mm. Wow. I was like, I was leaving and I was like, God, you know, it's the, it's the universal equalizer. We all end up in a body bag, man. Like really? So I don't know. Um, it is interesting and we don't really talk about death much. Like you said, you said it, it's very unseen. It is very unseen. We, you know, we obviously see it as the profession that we do, but like, I don't know what it is about the United States and our culture around death. Well, I think a lot of it too has to do with the media and there's actually a paper I can send the link to so you could post for viewers about the um, TV shows like ER and Grey's Anatomy. And uh, when they actually have scenes of CPR, 99.9% .9 of those scenes, the CPR resuscitates the patient. So Which we know 
Right. <laughs> like if you have an in-hospital code, uh, do you, like the chances of A, surviving that are, you know, less than like 7% in the U.S. And B, the chances of you walking out of that hospital are less than like 3%. Yeah. But yet on the TV screen, as Americans, we see that we're like, oh, yeah, we're going to be that, you know, Grey's Anatomy patient. So there's a dichotomy there. There's a total like disconnect. Yeah. And I think that's exactly why one out of five people wind up in the ICU because they want those heroic measures and they want everything down, but they don't know what it means, which is no fault of their own. You know, and I honestly, you know, my dad died in an ICU and we had a previous show about that. And I sometimes, you know, my, I think people uh, can say, well, that probably wasn't the best way to die. But I disagree because A, for me, it was incredibly reassuring as his daughter to be surrounded by nurses that knew what to do. And B, I knew we had good pain control and wouldn't suffer. And so in that context, I felt very reassured by that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, honestly, like that's my job as a clinician is to just simply ease suffering at death. Well, I know you personally do an amazing job. Like I can't even imagine what it would be like. You know, I, I know you and I know that it would be, you know, profound experience, I think, to have you take care to bear witness to how it is that you care for your patients. Well, you too, Um, though, you're doing it every day. Like, and the other thing I was thinking about is like watching your colleagues, not maybe not your patient dying, but your colleagues dying. That's also really intense sometimes. Yeah. You know, so even though this, you know, we're talking about our own experience, but like the universal experience when you're on the unit and you know, one, two, three, like you said, three deaths that day. Uh-huh. And what uh-huh. that does. And um, one thing I'll say that I think is really profound about working here at the VA is when we have a veteran die, we actually do a salute uh-huh. and we drape the body bag in the flag. And um, all of the nurses and the residents and myself and the attending, we stand at the door and we, you know, pay attention and we all pause. That's beautiful. It's really beautiful because it's like, okay, here is, we're an honoring, right? And I feel like that sometimes at other hospitals, it's like go through the back elevator, (laughs) you know, and don't look and don't see. Yeah. So that's been, I, I really have enjoyed that. And I think there's actually a published paper on it called The Pause. Yeah, because there is. It, there is. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it's like a national thing that VAs do. We we have it. We've instilled it at our, uh, we instilled, well, instituted that practice um, on our, you know, I don't think we're doing a very good job of doing it though. But you're right. It does actually show that people have, they're able to process the death better, you know, um, and, you know, have less PTSD. I mean, or whatever it is, like it is published and it is, you know, legitimate. It's a legitimate intervention that helps. 
Yeah, it's a ritual of like, I see you, I see this, I see my colleagues paying respect to this person who was and who has a lineage, you know? And I think that's really important. Do you do anything personally to honor anybody? Like, do you have a ritual that you do at home or anything? Well, we do soul foods on the unit once a month. And um, it's kind of like what you guys do with the candles. You like light a candle each month for the deaths. Yeah. Tea for the soul. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I kind of do that. I, I find that really, really helpful. And we also debrief as a team during that time and the um, chaplains actually lead it. And we just do like a, a moment to talk about the lives and the deaths of those, of those that were with us mm. during the month. Mm-hmm. So I do that more formally at work, but at home um, or like on my days off, I just honestly try to <laughs> enjoy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The present, not that I'm not, you know, it's not disrespect. It's just, no, no, I, I, I kind of have, I think we all have to cartman, cartman, I can't say compartmentalize, right? Like after you and I were the old veterans here. And so yeah, well, actually young veterans, you were the young veterans. <laughs> um, I kind of have to like do things. I have to try to be present when I'm home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can I just oh. grab some? Okay, sorry. No, it's I'm in okay. a public space. No, it's okay. Um, what I do at home, um, like all after work, um, like toast to them, like toast to their life, or you know, with Rob, and just like take a moment to honor them. And it's like a five second moment, you know, but it help it helps. I think it helps. I love that. That is, yeah, so important. Just to, like you said, it's an honoring, but not, mm-hmm. it doesn't take long. Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm. There was one chaplain I talked to who would write a, write, he'd have like a little, you know, jar of like flat stones or something, and he would write their names of, the patients that he lost and he would put them in this bowl and every now and again he would take the stone out and look at the name and think about them. Think about whoever it is that he picked up, you know, which I think is so cool. Um, and then I don't, I feel like I've talked about this before, but the chaplains pre COVID, at least in the Seattle area, had a happy hour called Chappy Hour. No, I didn't know this. <laughs> and they go and they debrief them because think about the work that they do in house. All it is is suffering, you know. God. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate them so much because, like, sometimes and this is shitty, but like we're so busy that like we can't sit there and hold the hand of somebody. Sometimes, sometimes we can. But sometimes we can't. And so chaplains will come and they'll listen and they'll pray and do whatever, you know, the family wants. But they can be there. Yeah. 
Um, I recently had, um, this was probably in like April when COVID was kind of surging a little bit, mm-hmm. or like March. Was it February, March? Yeah. <laughs> and um, we had a COVID patient. And at that time, the policy was like one visitor allowed at the door. Um, but the family didn't want to come in because they were all older and had comorbid conditions. And like, I totally think that's legitimate. Absolutely. You know, so we got the iPad and the chaplain and I went in and we got to FaceTime with the family and the patient was not conscious. Um, but he sang a hymn and it was just, it was a very beautiful moment um, with this technology. <laughs> Again, it's just so different right now. Yeah. But they got to have that closure in that last prayer. And I felt really good about that. And that's a special, special moment that they'll remember for the rest of their lives. And I had such a cheesy thing I was going to say, which is like, it feels like a win. You know, like that's what we want, even in times like this. Um, you know, my mentor, um, sorry, did I interrupt you? No, no, please go, go. So I, I think I've talked about him on your show before, but Stu Farber, he started the Cambria center of palliative care and, um, he and I worked together in the, the make you sick you at that time. And he was a palliative care physician. And just, if anybody knew Stu on the show, like, just a special person. Um, he would come in and this was before palliative care was really even really accepted in the ICU. We, we actually had to get permission from the teams to get them to consult rather than consult palliative care. You know what I mean? Like it was very not as accepted as it is now. And he would come in and just sit in the room and observe like for hours while I'm, you know, doing the tasks, like hanging the meds. And he was just like kind of this Buddha doctor. Um, and he can, like his whole idea was based on narrative medicine and just getting to know the family and the patient intimately um, and just being present. That was sort of his um, philosophy because sometimes that's all you can do is just be present. There's something so powerful in investigating and taking time um, and to really suss out what it is that these people want. Like, what do they really want? What, like, what is their life really supposed to be like? Um, mm-hmm. Or their, 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 you know, what isn't aligned with what you know, we talked about this a little bit on the last show, but like, um, that's really important work because if you look at someone mm-hmm. and they're intubated, maxed out on pressors on dialysis, you know, and you know, you know, and I know they're not going to get out of here alive. Or if they are, they're going to go to a long-term care facility and be stuck on a vent and a peg and whatever. Like if you look and, and really investigate, like, are these, what would this person want who can't tell us? 
Yeah. I mean, it gets into the whole idea for me of like, what is informed consent? Hmm. Can you really, like, can someone absolutely be consentable to IC level care? (laughs) Can you really understand what that means? You and I know. Yeah. But do you think people really understand what that means to be ventilated and on pressors and on HD and being turned and incontinent. And you know what I I don't know that that's actually something you can say. I always ask this because I love ethical discussions um, in general, but like with chemotherapy, can you really, really know all of the side effects? Can you really sign that informed consent? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, give me the chemo, obviously, but (laughs) what I'm saying, I don't think anyone can like foresee everything that can happen. No, no. And then of course I, we are so incredibly have a very skewed view of. We do. And I think, yeah. Yeah. And I often tell people like you were beginning in the, the beginning of our talk about like, can you prognosticate? Can you know when this person's going to die? And I never, ever do that because I'm always wrong. (laughs) And, you know, families are like, but tell us, tell us. And I'm like, I don't know. And oftentimes I'm like completely wrong. And the patient actually does okay and goes home. And like, like that happens too. Yeah. (laughs) Which you're like, okay, great. You surprised me. All right. Yeah. You know, It's just constantly humbling. Totally. Well, yeah. I mean, we just don't know the future. We don't know. We just don't know. But I I think you're right. Do people really understand what it means when you're here? And in COVID, I feel like it's even highlighted further because you can't be with your family. And to me, I've had a lot of people say, no way. I'm staying home. (laughs) I've had... And, you know, I think we're seeing some of those complications of people not coming into their appointments, which is another issue. Yeah, right. Because they're terrified that they won't be able to, I don't know, they might be admitted or they don't want to do that. They don't want to be away from their loved one or their TV or the comfort. Yeah. I want to highlight something that it was is um, jumping on something you said, which is, you know, the people with COVID, you know, people haven't been able to visit their loved ones necessarily in the same way. And I think it's been super detrimental in some cases because they don't appreciate how sick this person has been or see the course or see how, you know, like over time, how they're progressing. It's one thing to hear it on the telephone. It's a totally different thing to see it in your face to face. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I don't know. It's, it's so funny because when I was, you know, starting as a nurse, we had limited ICU hours. I don't know if you remember this. And then there was a huge push to change that and involve family presence. And that was a transition culturally for nursing. And then now here we are, you know, having to beg administrators to let someone in. It's just so, it's so weird for me. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because we know too, families, patients do better when their families are there. And like you said, they, families can see, right? They can feel, they can be aware of it rather than on a screen. Um, yeah. 
I hope we get back there soon. I mean, I know some people out there will be like, <laughs> families being at the bedside is so challenging. It certainly can be. It, it can, can be, be but very you know, challenging. I think, I think it's an, it also brings up the idea of justice, you know, like who gets to visit and how are we going to transition to being back open? And I don't, that I think is a nightmare for hospital administrators to figure out. Yeah. Well, oddly, when my dad was in the hospital not too long ago, he was in the, he was in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, he ended up having a huge blood clot on his leg, um, had a thrombectomy, found out that he is factor five Leiden. Anyway, down there, he, um, they allowed like, like friends in, they allowed, there was no visitor limitations. Like they didn't even have to wear a mask in the room, which is totally different than up here. Wow. Did the providers wear masks? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a weird world right now. I know. I know. In some places it's like, it's, I don't know, back to normal, that quote unquote normal, whatever that is. But then here, you know, things are still pretty strict and I mean we've had like heartbreaking conversations around who to let in you know well like I we had the other day you know children so for me that that honestly the hardest deaths are parents of young children that by far we've had that happen and the kids can't come in and I'll be damned if my child won't come. I, I, I just would scream in agony. Like that, there's nothing more heartbreaking than that. And this mm-hmm. whole pen, it like makes me emotional talking yeah. about it. Cause I cannot imagine if I'm dying, my daughter not coming in because she's too young. Like, fuck you. Sorry. It no. makes me mad. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's totally not. Fair. I would be like, take me, Ryan, take like literally excavate me, put me in the taxi and get me home to her. Yeah, right. You would be like, I don't give a shit if I'm like struggling to breathe. <laughs> just suck. <laughs> no, I'll have you, Nicole, just push in the morphine. There you go. <laughs> don't sure, take your funny. IV up. <laughs> I'll, I'll go with you in the taxi. No, so, but I think that that is just. Oh. And I know many, probably a lot of your listeners even maybe are. Have had that happen. Yeah. I, I hate to even say this, but, you know, I was taking care of somebody. There was a situation where my patient died and I didn't, wasn't expecting them to die. Well, mm-hmm. that same day, like, well, it's not all family members got to see him before he died. A couple people tried to come and see him, but they were, like, turned away accidentally by the security and it was a big kerfuffle. And anyway... Two people didn't end up seeing him before he died who were approved to come and see him before he died. And I'm like, I don't know. That stays with me a little bit. Like, I was too busy with my other patient. I didn't get the phone calls that there was someone down in security. Like, I had no idea. And his two sons didn't get to see him. They were adult, you know. And they were waiting. Were they, they waiting? They were trying to get. They were waiting, trying to get in. Mm-hmm. We just had this happen yesterday. It's fucked up, dude. I, I think it is more common, and nobody knew they were waiting. It's just like this institutional barrier. 
Yeah. And like, had you known, had we known? Yeah. And then I think, you know, it's someone tried to, someone eventually got a hold of them like shortly after, but they had, they had somewhere to be so that they had to go. So they just, you know, just gave up and left and figured that they would try to come later. But of course we never know. And so they died. Yeah. Wow. I know this has been a really, really heavy conversation, but also super therapeutic. I don't know about you. Oh, yeah. I think, again, when you're able to have these open, honest conversations about the work we do and the balance of all of this, while we're in the middle as humans taking care of humans, mm-hmm. it, it's 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 therapeutic and it's really good. And I, I want to be, I want to be more open about these things, you know? Yeah. And, um, I think for all your listeners out there, you're not alone in that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it just really sucks. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's, you know, there is beautiful deaths too. And I, I've seen that. And, uh, you know, when there can be a community of people, I've been in, I was once in a room with like 50 people singing hymns at the UW. I remember this, um, all together in unison. I mean, that is like a powerful moment to witness. So, um, amazing. I remember I was with a patient and it was the same kind of thing in that it was a crowded, crowded room. (laughs) And um, when the patient passed, it was so weird. I felt like it was a really cloudy day. It was a really rainy, you know, rainy day, whatever, really dark and light just shone through the window Mm -hmm. on her. Like as she passed. And that like right in that moment. And I was like, what did I just witness? What did you witness? What was that? I don't know. Maybe she left her body. I don't know. I don't know. But it's a, it's this mystery, but it it's really powerful. Mhm. Mhm. But that was beautiful. Being able to be with everybody there um you know, honoring wh- whoever it was in their life. It's that's a gift. I mean, I know we've talked about he- the heavy shit, heaviness of this. But like it is a true gift. If we're if you know what you're doing, I don't even know if that's the right thing to say. That's probably not the right thing to say. But like, like I feel like we can do that really well, you know. As nurses, as nurses and providers, absolutely. I think sometimes when I'm, you know, I see families struggling, um, and they're like, "Am I making the right decision here?" And, um. You know, and, and everything they've said has been aligned with the patient's wishes. And and I always try to reassure them that this is, it's okay. And, and we are, we are trained to do this. We do not abandon you in, in this moment in your life. It's not a failure. It's life. Right. Um, and one of the best things, like when I'm in family meetings, my attending, you know, uh, he, uh, my direct, my medical director, he'll say, you know, if this was my dad, I would do the same thing. 
Mm. And I, I think that's so beautiful for families to hear sometimes because myself, you know, being in a lot of, uh, having a lot of making final decisions for my own family, when I hear someone say that that's in the profession, um, that's a gift too. Like we give that gift back by not letting families feel the burden. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing and it's okay. And the fact that you get to be involved in making this decision and we have time for you to come and, and be here, like that's a gift. So, wow. All right. Wow. (laughs) I've been having a beer this whole time. So we could finish the beer together you're drinking, but I'm on shift. So, (laughs) well, thank you so much for taking time out with me. Honestly, Des, I'm, I'm grateful that you would have these conversations with me for everybody out there, um, to unveil some, uh, to pull back the veil. And also, you know, for the new nurses out there, again, you're not alone. And some of those feelings are heavy that you have and they're not, um, and it's okay. Like it's normal. So it's um, normal and it's not wrong and you didn't fail. That's right. That's right. Well, well, you're the best, Nicole. You're and the best. And, should we do uh, a little countdown? Because I messed it up last time. Oh, yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it stays safe and stay sane. It's, and we'll see you on the next one. Okay. Okay. One, two, three. Stay, stay safe. safe and stay sane. Stay and and we'll see you on the next one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave an honest review on whatever platform you are listening. Also, feel free to share this with your nursing colleagues. If you'd like to email me, you can do so at founddownpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to send in any stories. Just make sure they're HIPAA compliant. Also, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at founddownpodcast. We'll see you on the next one.